Well, for today's teaching, Pastor Josh will be teaching on Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to be reading this set of scripture. It is long, but it is worth it. You can follow along in your Bibles, or you can follow along by reading the screen behind me. Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, so that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon this, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his colors changed, and the lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods? In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians and enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers, because of the excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems that were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, 
have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Thank you, Amy. It's good to have you back as a service leader. It's good to see you. Uh, Daniel 5, right? Daniel 5 is where we are, so please uh, open a Bible there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a bunch, excuse me, a bunch on the back table, and you can go and grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that home with you as our gift to you. But it's going to be really important for you to have that Bible open. And as we're walking through the passage together tonight, I'm not going to read a lot of it. And so I just want you to be able to follow along as we're going through various things. Uh, Guys, I'm really curious if uh, you are living in reality. Are you living in reality or are you living in a fantasy world? Are you living in reality or are you living in a fantasy world? Uh, You might even hear people say, man, you're not living in the real world. Has anyone ever told you that before? I even think when you um, hear about some people in the world who aren't Christians, the way they talk about Christians, they might even say things like, Christians aren't living in the real world anymore. Right? What they're referring to is there's Christian beliefs and doctrines and values that seem to be like old and uh, ancient and out of style, right? You're, you're not living in reality, right? You might hear people say. Even for secular people um, who don't follow Christ, for example, uh, most people nowadays, they wouldn't necessarily say that God doesn't exist. People, most people, a lot of people would say God exists, but what people are going to say to you is that God doesn't matter. So it's not that God doesn't exist, it's that God doesn't really matter, right? He's fine for your private life. I mean, if you want to believe in God, if you want to follow God, if you want to pray to Him in the quietness, of your house or something like that, that's great, that's fine, that's whatever you want to do, right? But let's not bring him into the public square. For if we were to bring him in the public square, we're not going to be living in reality. So when it comes to how you run your business, it's more about what's the bottom line or, or is the thing you're doing, is it working, right? Then that's all you should really care about. Or when it comes to your marriage or parenting or all these other spheres of our lives, people aren't going to want to bring God into it. And they might even say to you it's because we want to live in the real world, right? Well, guys, in our passage tonight, what you actually see is the real world is coming face to face with a fantasy world, with a fantasy world. We see a man in our story who thought he was living in reality, and then things shifted quickly, and he learned that he was living a fantasy of his own making, Maybe he would say something to you and me tonight that would say something like, you know, I didn't see this coming. You know, or he'd say, if I'd I'd only, um, if I'd only seen it coming, right, if I'd only known. Maybe he would even go so far as to say, if I only saw the writing on the wall earlier, right? Fun fact for you, by the way, that idiom, the writing on the wall that you've heard people say all the time, right, comes from this story, So if you don't know, where did that saying come from? It actually came from Daniel chapter 5. So the next time you hear somebody say, the writing's on the wall, or you read it in a news article or something like that, I want your mind to go back to Daniel chapter 5, right? Because that's where this comes from. 
So are you living in reality or are you living in a fantasy? We are supposed to see ourselves in Belshazzar and learn from him. And so here's what we're going to see as we walk through this great story. We're going to see a man who's alarmed. And what we're learning here is that God is not in your hand. Next, we're going to see this man weighed. And that's where we learn that you are in God's hand. And the last thing we get, we get this, the, you know, the conclusion of this great story. Um, we're going to ask the question, where do you get your weight? Where will you get your weight? So let's look first at this man who is alarmed as he thinks God is in his hand. We have between chapter 4 and chapter 5 a really helpful verse that's linking these two together. Do you see what it says at the end of chapter 4? Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And from chapter 4 to chapter 5, about 23 years has passed. Nebuchadnezzar has exited stage right on the stage of life, never to be seen again. And we are introduced to a new king, Belshazzar, which could be a little bit confusing because, as the text even says, Daniel was given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, right? So this is just kind of confusing in so many different ways. But this guy's name is Belshazzar. And down in verse 2, we see him referred to as Nebuchadnezzar's uh, son, right? Basically, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is called his father. And this terminology would have been really common. It's common in the Bible. It's basically a way of saying that Belshazzar was a part of the kingly not line of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, think of Nebuchadnezzar as his grandfather or his like great uncle or something like that. He's in this kingly line. Interestingly, though, Belshazzar is understood in history to be the corrigent of Nabonidus, who was the king of Babylon, right? So basically, Belshazzar ruled alongside his father, Nabonidus. So Belshazzar is second in command, right? So why is he here in Babylon doing the things that he's doing? Well, Nabonidus is away in battle, and Belshazzar is back in Babylon ruling. And so word has now come We know this from history in the Greek historian Herodotus. That word has come that the Persians have conquered other cities nearby, and yet that doesn't seem to be phasing Belshazzar too much. So other kingdoms are falling while his dad is out as king, leading these armies and that sort of thing, and he's back behind the walls of Babylon, and he's throwing a huge party, and he is at the center of this party. Now, why party when cities are being conquered and dropping like flies all around you? Why would you throw a big party when you're on the brink of war? Well, we also know from the Greek historian Herodotus many things about the city of Babylon. You have this great painting on the, on the screen. I did not paint this, okay? If you were wondering, I did not paint this. But um, this may be helpful just to think about what's going on here. We know that the city of Babylon had enough food stored up behind its walls that could last them about three years. Right, so they were well equipped to, to not have to leave the city for a long time. They had this great river Euphrates running through the city. So having access to water was critical for any city uh, in, in ancient world to have any life and vitality. They had these great walls all the way around the city that were believed to be impenetrable. And this deep river, the Euphrates, acts as basically this second boundary, this second wall of protection. So just think about it. The festival that's going on, let's just say maybe it was already scheduled, maybe it was already on the calendar, and so in the presumed thinking of Belshazzar, hey, we're in the greatest city. We're in Babylon. Even though other cities have been conquered, right, we're going to be fine. Why cancel the feast? I mean, no one can defeat us. So that's what's going on here. But notice all eyes are on this king. You notice this at the beginning of the chapter, right? He's, all the eyes are on him. He drank wine in front of a thousand, is what it says. The language is causing us to be introduced to this king, that he is on center stage. He is in front of, it's almost theatrical, that he's like performing in front of all these people. And you see this drinking that's noticeably highlighted again in verse 2. What does it say? When he tasted the wine, what happened when he tasted the wine? He commanded that the vessels that were ransacked from the temple of God in Jerusalem when they were conquered by Babylon, those sacred vessels were brought into pagan places of worship by Nebuchadnezzar. 
And here, when he tastes the wine, he commands that, hey, those Jewish sacred vessels from their temple, let's bring those babies out and let's drink from them. Let's drink from them. Right? He commanded they bring them out so they might drink from them. This, this kind of sounds like what I used to do with some of my friends when I was younger. You know, you're, you're hanging out, you're having a really good time, and all of a sudden someone does something crazy and your friend goes, oh, you think that's crazy? Watch this, right? And then you're like, oh, you think that's crazy? Watch this, right? It just, as you're partying, as you're hanging out, that sort of thing begins to happen. Maybe you've done that before. But at some point, things get awkward when a line is crossed that should never have been crossed, right? And everybody just calms down and, you know, we're done with the craziness. And that's what we see happen here. There is a line that's been crossed when the whole vibe in this place is a big party. You know, you want to do something crazy? You seem crazy? Let's go get those Jewish sacred vessels and let's drink out of them. So we are two verses in and the author has brought up that Belshazzar was drinking, that everyone is drinking. It's repeated in verse 3 that they drank from these vessels. Verse 4 tells you again that they drank wine. So we have five mentions of drinking in four verses. But interestingly, guys, this is not really about the drinking. Don't miss the image. They're taking the sacred things of God that they had already taken out of God's holy temple in Jerusalem and have now taken them out of their pagan temple And they're using them as a utility to simply party and indulge. And what are they doing as they wrap their hands around Yahweh's sacred vessels? What does it say? They're giving praise to who? The gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is signaling that in this king's mind, Yahweh had no real power in Babylon. Yahweh had no place in Babylon. I mean, his stuff, Yahweh's stuff, is out of their sacred places. And we all know the image, when your stuff is out, you're out. Right? I imagine maybe this hasn't happened to you, but you've seen it maybe in a movie or something like that. Imagine you go home tonight and all of your things are out on the front lawn. Someone just threw them out. Right? What are you going to be thinking You're not going to go, that's weird, my stuff's outside. No, you're going to know what happened. You're out of the house, right? If you go to your office and all your things are in a box and set out of your office, that's not just a fun little trick someone's playing on you. You're out, right? That's what's happening here. Yahweh's stuff isn't just out, Yahweh's out. But then notice what happens in verse 5. Immediately, immediately, fingers just like the fingers that you have on your hands, appear, and they write on the wall. Curious, what would you do if you saw this? I mean, this is kind of an appropriate story for the month of October with Halloween coming up, I imagine, right? This is a pretty spooky story, right? I I would feel kind of creeped out a little bit if I had seen this. We guys, we learned this is not perceived by anybody as like a cool party trick, right? Uh, Rembrandt has a famous, very famous painting hanging in the National Gallery in London, It's titled Belshazzar's Feast. We'll see it there on the screen. Rembrandt was fairly kind and sophisticated in his painting. I happen to really love the painting myself. But in the text in verse 6, we see almost a comic book kind of description. It tells us that the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. His limbs gave way as literally the knots of his loins were loosened, right? So his bladder and bowels stopped functioning in the way that they should, all right? This was not a cool party trick. This was embarrassing, very embarrassing, right? The man who had everyone's attention, all eyes are on him, who thought he was so awesome, has just lost all sense of even his bodily control. You know, you wish Billy Madison were there to have his back saying, you're not cool unless you have your loins loosened or something, right? So the king calls loudly. He's alarmed to bring all the best of the spiritual, religious, and smart people of the kingdom on in. And in his stupor, while he's quickly sobering up, apparently, he says, if you can interpret this, I'll make you third in command. So it would go Nabonidus, me, and then you, right? That's how this would work. 
Well, it's interesting, though, is he's the king, so he should just call these people in, and he could almost look at them and just say, hey, do your job. But that's not what he does. He tries to motivate them. And I imagine this did motivate them, but as we see in verse 8, they could not read the writing or make the interpretation known, so King Belshazzar was very alarmed again. His color changed again, and everyone was perplexed. Here we have it. A moment similar to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, where he has this dream, he doesn't know what it is, he can't interpret it. Another moment like last chapter, chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is humiliated. We have this moment again where Belshazzar has an opportunity, right? He's alarmed, and where does he turn in such a moment of desperation? Well, he turned to his faith, right? It didn't work, though. What he thought might help him in his moment of desperation, in his moment of embarrassment, in his moment of fear, what he thought would help him, it betrayed him. It didn't work. So his sense of alarm only intensifies. I mean, what is he going to do now? Guys, this is exactly how the mercy of God often functions in our lives. This is often God's pattern, right? When our world comes crashing down, you and I tend to look at things to help us cope. You and I look at things to help us even fix our problems, yet those things prove useless, don't they? We may not call in enchanters or or whatnot. You might not do that, but we have our own pantheon that we confide and hope in. Maybe when your world comes crashing down, you call into the room moralism, right? You think, well, I just need to get on top of some things in my life, and that'll fix everything. Or you call religion into the room. You just need to start going back to church and reading my Bible. That'll fix everything. Or maybe it's even more secular, right? You, you call into the room different things like occultism or pluralism or machoism or feminism, agnosticism, scientism, political or social activism. Yet when we try and turn to things like this, when we feel like something in our lives has happened that's maybe sobered us up a little bit and shaken us out of our worldly stupor, they prove to make us more desperate and alarmed because we find that they don't work. So where should we go? What should we do? Well, my friends, we must see that these moments where we come to the end of ourselves, where nothing else is working, they're actually merciful opportunities from the hand of God. I read this week about Kenneth McRae, who was a Scottish minister in the early 1900s. And he he wrote various things in, in in a biography memoir of sorts. He wrote about how he experienced different suffering or messed up plans in his life or great disappointments even. And he wrote, I would have been undone if I had not been undone. I would have been ruined if I had not been ruined. So think about it. This guy saw his disappointments and moments of being sobered up under great suffering and ruined plans and disappointments. He saw them as an opportunity from God. An opportunity for what? For deliverance, for for deep and profound transformation in his life. He finishes his thought by saying, God orders lesser afflictions that we may escape greater. I've often wondered over the last few years, even in my own life, as I've faced various forms of suffering or disappointment or unrealized plans, and I've thought, you know, what if I saw those things as opportunities to just quiet my prideful heart and ask God to show me what I'm clearly missing. That's the image here, guys. Belshazzar has Yahweh in his hand. He thinks he runs the world. He feels secure behind his great walls, but he can't stop God from showing up. And even the best and the brightest and the strongest in his inner circle can't help him. He's exposed. He's alarmed. Next, he's weighed. We see this in verses 10 through 28. And what we actually see here is the narrator kind of loses his voice, as it were, and speeches are brought in. We have this queen mother's speech in 10 through 12, Belshazzar's speech in 13 through 16, and Daniel's speech in 17 all the way down through 28 before the narrator comes back in. First, we see this queen mother who comes in. Maybe she heard the raucous, you know, in the other room and 
And she enters the scene. And before you know it, everything in this story depends upon her intrusion. If she doesn't show up, Belshazzar would have just been left staring at the wall in embarrassment. These kind of figures often pop up in the Bible. They don't have a name. They're just called something, like the queen. And they show up just for a quick second, and their presence matters more than anything. It hinges on her presence here. Belshazzar may not have remembered, but the queen mother remembered that there is a man in Babylon who in the queen's words, verse 11, is the spirit of the holy gods. She then basically says, do you remember chapter 2, Belshazzar? You heard that story, right? This, was, this has kind of happened before, although in a very different format and a very different setting. But there's a guy he can interpret. His name's Daniel. Guys, think about it. Daniel was a teenager then. At this point, Daniel is in his 80s. He's in his 80s. And so I don't say this tritely. God doesn't stop using you when you get older. Okay? God will continue to use you. He will continue to work in you. He'll continue to work through you as long as you have breath in your lungs. So if you're feeling older and not as useful right now, maybe in your days, don't Think to yourself, well, if only I was a teenager or a college student or a 20, 30, 40 or something like that, right? No, as long as you are God's, you are a vessel for his use. So the queen appears, now she's gone. Belshazzar, I imagine, is still trying to sober up, calls in Daniel, and what a scene. As this deserves like an Oscar, really. I mean, this is quite a scene here. You have the king, his color is gone, he's alarmed, Knees are knocking, completely in the dark as to what to do. His loins are loosened, calls in Daniel, a captured Jewish, now elderly slave. And what does he say in verse 13? You are that Daniel. If it reads oddly, like why does it say that Daniel? Well, it's because it is weird. It's striking. He's putting him down. He's putting him in his place. You are that Daniel. Let me remind you, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father, the king Nebuchadnezzar, brought in from Judah. You're that Daniel. You have to notice this. He's saying, my father, the great king Nebuchadnezzar, you're just one of his captured Jews. So after putting Daniel in his place... Daniel, cool, calm, collected, humble, yet confident Daniel, who's standing before a king who's falling apart, yet trying to act like he's got it all together, after making this clear to Daniel that he doesn't have much to offer, he says, I heard you have a particular set of skills. Skills that you've acquired from God, it seems, right? I would love to finish the taken stuff, but you know, I've heard you have some skills right? No one can tell me what the interpretation is. If you can, you can be third in the kingdom. Nabonidus, me, you. How interesting is this? Thomas Hardy, who was a great famous English poet, uh, him and his wife often had their friend over for tea named T.E. Lawrence. T.E. Lawrence was a military pilot. And uh, if you were in the military and you're a pilot, you were not like high class in society. One day, T.E. Lawrence came over to the Hardys for tea. And as he came over, it just so happened that the mayoress of Dorchester was there as well. She's high class. And uh, she was so appalled to be in the presence of this guy in his uniform, nonetheless. She thought she would never share the company of someone so low like him. No one said anything until, uh, basically, though, at one point, she leans over to Mrs. Hardy, And in French, because that would be the fancy thing to do, be more sophisticated, she said, I cannot imagine, I've never been in the presence of somebody like this. Just putting him down in French. But no one said anything in the room until T.E. Lawrence broke the silence by responding to the mayoress in perfect French. I beg your pardon, madame, but but can I be of any use as an interpreter? Mrs. Hardy knows no French. It's an embarrassing moment for the mayoress. 
as you can imagine, the very person that she disdained was the only one who could help her. Interesting. Right, this section, guys, should kind of make you laugh. The king appears as basically a street drunk dressed up as Halloween for, as a king. The most powerful king in the world, mind you. And he's only pretending to have power as he's barking out promises to Daniel. And what is he offering Daniel? Some fancy things and a share of his power, third in the kingdom, a kingdom that is about to see its end. You want to be in power in that kingdom? What a great reminder, you guys, that we should not be impressed by someone's status and we should not fear worldly power. Who are we to be impressed with here? We're to be impressed with Daniel, right? What about Daniel? His character and his faith. So we finally get to Daniel's speech, right? We're getting to the climax of the story now. And what does he say? Well, first, he rejects the gifts down in verse 17, doesn't he? He says, I don't want them. I don't even need them. But I'll tell you what the, the, the inscription says, which is great because that's all Belshazzar even cares about. What does it say? That's all he wants. Belshazzar, guys, you can argue, just wants a pacifier. Right? You know, like a baby's pacifier. He, he really just wants things to get better so they can go back to the way that they were. What Daniel wants to give him is not a pacifier, though. Daniel wants to give him perception. This is why he doesn't just start by saying, here's what it says. No, he gets some preaching pants on, basically. And he begins to tell a story of the old days when lessons were actually learned and when leaders conducted themselves and how they conducted themselves actually mattered. He reminds Belshazzar about his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and how he became proud, how he lifted himself up above the rightful place of God and how God humbled him. He goes through the events of chapter 4, which Mike preached really um, well about two weeks ago. He tells of how Nebuchadnezzar learned that the Most High God, the same God that Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar just decided to mock, the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. But then things get ratcheted up in verses 20 through 23. What does it say? And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel essentially points his finger at Belshazzar, and we see this emphasis going on here in repetition. And you, and you, you have not humbled your heart, even though you know this. You've heard the story, and you mocked God by praising non-existent gods who can't think, who can't hear, who can't see. And listen, Belshazzar, you thought by lifting up that golden vessel that you could wrap your fingers around the Most High God when, in fact, this God that you mocked holds your very breath in his hand. You thought God was in your hand. But surprise, you're living in fantasy land. You are in God's. You see the pattern of the story. There's a hand around this vessel, all this pride. There's a hand on the wall. There's your breath in God's hand. And then verse 24, from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. There's a hand that comes from heaven. You see, when we feel we have something under control, we feel at ease. But if something leaves the boundaries that we've set for it, fear and chaos tend to enter our hearts, right? It's like a fire in a fireplace, right? It's nice. But a fire in your kitchen? I don't know. Not so nice. Uh, I was reminded, it should be on the screen for you here, but a few years ago we took our kids to the zoo in uh, Denver. And uh, I took a picture of my son at this tiger exhibit and behind him is just this really big huge glass spotlessly clean 
barrier between us and the tiger. But it blew my mind because I'm like, man, that tiger is just a few feet away. This glorious, majestic, fearsome tiger in my little boy who was like four at the time, just right there. And we felt so at ease. We felt so at ease. Why? Because he was in the cage. He was in the exhibit. But you can't help but look at a picture like this and go, man, if this was real, and we're just like out in the open and there's a big old glorious tiger, I'm not going to go, hey, buddy, get over there and we get your picture, right? No, because we're not at ease when there's a tiger just right there who could do whatever he wants, right? It's all good at a distance, but terrifying when it's free. You guys, if we ever think that we can hold God in our hand, that we have him in our box, he's under our control, that he serves us, that he's here to meet my needs, what I think is best for my life, that we know what's best. Guys, we're standing on thin ice. God is not mocked. He is the most high God in whose hand is your very breath. That's the frightening thing that makes our knees knock a bit is that we have done this. We have done this. We are like Belshazzar. Romans 1 writes about this, saying, Although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but we became fuel in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Guys, we have all traded God in for what could be considered a wine of our own making. So finally, Daniel gets to what Belshazzar even wants. Verses 25 through 28. This is the writing that is inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So here we discover that these words are Aramaic words that are used in measuring. So mina means to count, tekel, kind of related to shekel. It's a standard metal weight of currency. The related word would be to weigh. And then parson means half portion or half measure. That's how you get the idea of your kingdom is divided. So he's being weighed here. Belshazzar is on a scale, you could say. And see, weights and measures have been used from the beginning of time as symbols to represent justice and righteousness. To this day, law courts have this image of Lady Justice or the Greek goddess Themis carrying the scales of justice in one hand, and you can't see there, but she has a sword in the other. Most often her eyes are covered, she's blindfolded, displaying a symbol of impartiality, a symbol of integrity. As this image of weighing is exactly what God is doing. He is adding up the man, Belshazzar. And the glory and righteousness of Belshazzar is like a feather on the scale. The writing on the wall is true for us as well. We don't just think, man, this is a crazy story. Could you imagine that? That's not what we're supposed to do with the story. There, there is coming a day, you guys when all of us will step onto the divine scales of justice. And this story acts as the writing on the wall for you and me too. And we could see it as an opportunity. We could say like, McCray, I'm so glad I was ruined so I didn't become ruined. Or we can be like Belshazzar. So that leads us to the final question, where will you get your weight? We see in 29 through 31, the great downfall of Babylon, the great Babylon. Babylon fell, we know from the historian Herodotus, fell on October 12, 539 B.C. So, two days from now. And he fell, he wrote about it, uh, they fell to the Mede-Persian army, and we learn that they got into the city by diverting the great river Euphrates into this canal so that it lowered itself to a, a thigh-length height so that the, the military could walk through the river and sneak under the walls. So it was a really tricky attack. And Herodotus even notes what were the leaders doing on that night. He even notes 
They were having a big party. This was the end of Belshazzar. And evidently there was no repentance. So the transition from Belshazzar to Darius, it only took a night. Do you see that in verse 30 and 31? I think this is the most haunting line here in the whole thing. Verse 30, that very night. Makes you think of Saul. Makes you think of Judas. Right? Makes you think of that rich man in Luke chapter 12. This very night, your soul is required of you. Right? We must not think that this account is merely about Belshazzar, though. It is about us too, right? Christians, non-Christians, any of us who have these hidden Belshazzar attitudes. We might not stand up with golden vessels before thousands of people and drink wine out of them, mocking God, but we are little Belshazzars and we don't listen to the testimony. When we don't have a teachable spirit, right? When we mock God or think that we can tame him, when we put God on the scales according to what we think he should be doing and he's found wanting according to our standards, when in all reality, you and I are the ones who will be on the scales. So what do you think when that great day comes, if the writing's on the wall, you know the day's coming when you will stand on the scales of divine justice, what do you think? Where will you get your weight? When God puts us on the scales of that justice, he's going to count and count. He's going to weigh and weigh what will happen. How do you assess your life? Do you begin just by thinking, well, I'm not as bad as Belshazzar? And I go, well, that's good right? But if all your thoughts, if all of your actions, like the private actions that you think no one's ever seen you do, or the most public of actions, if you were to like have all those broadcast tonight, all the worst things you've ever done, would you go running out of the room? How how will you add up? I think if we were sober enough, we would probably readily admit, you know, I'm a featherweight on the other side of the scale of divine justice. Because on the other side of that scale is divine perfection and glory. So where will I get my weight? Where will you get it? Think about it. Belshazzar brought in a cast-off Jewish man named Daniel as a last-ditch effort to fix his problems. Belshazzar despised Daniel's God and thought he could wrap his fingers around him in control. That, that's made me think all week about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we, lead, we read that Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ as the crucified one. A scandal to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Right, do you see the only way to keep from perishing, the only way to be being weighed and found wanting, not found wanting, the only way that heaven's help comes to perishing people who see the writing on the wall is through a crucified king. This did not make sense to Jews or Greeks because a cursed Messiah couldn't be a saving Messiah. He has to be mighty, not mangled. For the Greeks, God must fit into their expectations to win their vote. For the Jews, the Messiah needs to be might. For the Greeks, he must be slick. Jews want strength. Greeks want style. Jews are interested in power. Greeks are interested in the packaging. Jesus' focus on force right? Greeks on finesse. For the Jews, the, the cross lacks punch. For the Greeks, it lacks sense. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. As Americans, we seek therapy or political power. But guys, as Christians, we preach Christ as the crucified one. We might not be so different from Belshazzar after all. A cast-off Jew of the God we have despised is our only hope. And he's come. He's the king, he's the judge, he's the savior. Think of the words of Isaiah. He's the truer and better Daniel. 
right? Because Daniel is said to have all this wisdom and understanding and knowledge, but we're told of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This same Jesus who doesn't have to listen or see the external because he knows everything about you. He has come, and what has he done? Did he come to destroy you? No. We read that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become full of his weight, right? The righteousness of God. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might add up that we would have our weight so that we would become rich. Guys, where do you get your weight? You can only get it from Jesus. If you don't get it from Jesus, you will not add up. So what do we learn from this incredible story? How does this story help us live faithfully at the margins, you guys? Well, three quick things come to my mind. Number one, this story is meant to comfort us How? Because it's showing us that there will be perfect and complete justice in the world one day. Remember Babylon came on the scene in chapter 1? Babylon's gone. The great city that no one thought they could overpower. That seems so scary, I'm guessing, in the eyes of all the exiles. It is no more. The great powerful city of the world fell overnight. We must see that. Babylon was never really in control. We all rightly long then for justice, don't we? In each of our lives, we all look around and we go, man, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. We sing that song, Is He Worthy? And we all sing, do you feel the world is broken? And we go, we do. We all rightly long for justice. Inside, there's a longing we have that justice would prevail. We know that this comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God. And so because of that, we should long for justice and we should work for justice. But the longer we live, we can become discouraged because we see more and more of injustice. But we must never forget that there will be finally justice for all. And that can comfort us. As you look around, you go, will things ever change? Oh, absolutely. We don't despair. This text should comfort us. Right, So we can live faithfully at the margins without despair because whatever's at the center that seems so powerful will one day get weighed too. And it will become nothing. If you want comfort, read Revelation 18 about the great fall of Babylon, right? Like the world system of Babylon. This should comfort us. It should also caution us in this way that we should not neglect the truth that God has provided. Nebuchadnezzar would have told the story of what he went through in chapter 4 to all of his kids. Imagine, to all, all of his family, right? And even here in verse 22, what does Daniel say? You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew this of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, right? You didn't listen to grandpa, right? Belshazzar, you heard the story, but you chose not to embrace the story. He rejected the wisdom and information that he had. He rejected the stories of the past. And friends, we often do the same. And maybe you heard about Jesus, even growing up you heard about Jesus, and now you've reached a point in your life where you've, neglect, you've rejected Jesus. You think that's, that's old, that's ancient, I want something new. But we are all accountable for what we know. And the character traits that Belshazzar lacks, what are they? They're a teachable spirit that manifests itself in humility. He thinks he'll be fine. He thinks he can do it his own way. But he's wrong. Me and my wife Elizabeth could not have functioned differently as teenagers. She was so wise, and she'd always see what other people were doing and mistakes they were making and bad choices. And she'd go, well, I'm not going to do that because look at what happened. And I was the guy who was always like, look at what happened. Maybe it won't happen to me, right? I'll just see what happens, right? No, we want to be more like Elizabeth, right? This is exactly what it's saying. Like, you're going to be accountable for what you know. Pay attention to what Belshazzar teaches us. He's teaching us that having clear information does not guarantee the right response. 
So are you teachable? He knew all this about Nebuchadnezzar, but he did not humble his heart, you guys. So we will live faithfully at the margins when we listen and embrace God's word. And lastly, we only have a comfort and a caution. We see a cure here, that we are to find life in the one true king. The writing on the wall is devastating news. But there's a better word that has come. A word has come. Jesus has come. The king has come, you guys. Makes me think of Luke chapter 1, where Mary is told that she's going to conceive and and bear a child, right? And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. That's the word for God in our story. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary continues in her great song, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So God the Father has set over the world his own son, Jesus, and wonderfully he drank not a cup of indulgence, but he drank the cup of God's wrath for his people that we might be offered a place with him, drinking with him in his eternal kingdom. So we either turn to the king who drank of that cup, or we can keep drinking of the cups of our own making, knowing that one day we will be put on the scales. And on that day, you guys, if you've trusted in this king, the party will just be starting. If you turn from this king, the party will be over. So are you living in the real world or a fantasy of your own making? Father, I do pray that tonight as we respond to your word that you would prick us where we need to be pricked, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. But more than anything, Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts as a church to find our hope in you, Lord Jesus, the one true King. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't take these kinds of passages lightly. I know for me it can often feel like, oh, that's interesting. or But this is warning us. And I pray that we would heed the warning of this passage. Lord, make us a teachable church. Make us teachable people, people who can say I was wrong. People who will humble ourselves and come back to you. Would you just saturate our church with the humility that we see in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.